every creative practice is imitation at first. You can't really avoid that. Over time, if you just keep making stuff, your influences melt together and it kind of becomes your own thing. You almost can't help but develop your own style. Hey, everybody. I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. Welcome to the weekly typographic. Our weekly episodes talk about type and design news, but we've got a bonus episode for you today. We're chatting with a designer that's innovating the field through education and their practice. It's going to be fun. Let's jump in. Hey, everyone. Today on the podcast, we have Chris Skillern. Chris is a Tulsa, Oklahoma-based type designer, lettering artist, and the founder of Tulsi Type. Chris is a proud Cherokee Nation citizen, and we were first introduced to Chris's work through his eye-opening talk at Type Weekend, Exploring the Cherokee Syllabary. He's done broad research into the history of the Cherokee writing system, and his recent typeface, Maylee, is a multi-script type family that supports both the Latin alphabet and the Cherokee syllabary. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. We're thrilled to have you here. Again, we saw your talk at Type Weekend, and I feel like you opened our eyes to this corner of the typographic world that we were unfamiliar with, and we were motivated from then on to be like, we need to have a conversation with Chris. We need to catch up, hear about his experience in type design, his experience broadening everyone else's horizons. So thrilled to have you here. (laughs) Awesome. Uh, Thank you for saying that, and I appreciate you all having me on. It's a it's cool to actually be on the podcast because I've been listening for a while. I appreciate you featuring me back at Type Weekend too. That was a nice surprise. Type Weekend brings a beautiful array and large net of voices, obviously from around the globe. But I also think in just, again, areas of typography that are underrepresented or not even usually seen in any mainstream form. And we're huge fans of Type Weekend, obviously. That's why we love covering it. But we were so happy to bring your talk to our listeners' attention, get you some new followers because you're doing cool stuff. I'm excited to catch up with you. So we can start in a few different places, but I kind of want to hear about how you got into type design. You are a graduate of the Type West program, so you've kind of had right. a semi-formal education. But what led you to that moment when you were like, I want to start doing type design? That's a long and winding road. And there's a moment that I can pinpoint in my mind that was like when I solidified type design in particular as like a path I wanted to follow. But art in general is something I've been doing my entire life. I spent all of my time as a kid drawing cartoons, still draw cartoons. Uh, I was in a band for 20 years, so I'd make a lot of like posters and album artwork and stuff like that. And that includes lettering. What kind of band? Punk pop? Uh, we started started as a punk band, and it was me and my, my brother Kevin and our friend Craig. Shout out to them. And uh, we started as a punk band when my brother and I were preteens. And then wow. it kind of evolved over the years. It's one of those annoying things where people ask what you sound like, and you say, well, we don't really sound like anyone. But, you know, <laughs> it's... It by the time we were like fully formed, it was more of like an indie rock post-hardcore sort of thing. That's awesome. Very cool. Yeah. yeah. We'll have to use your insight sometime in the future on punk lettering and graphic design. I'm always trying to see what all the subcultures are kind of percolating in their brains. So it's very cool. I feel like there's um, a lot of punk people in the type world. Really? The type world reminds me of the punk rock scene and DIY oh my gosh. music scene in a lot of ways. But that's yeah. a, a story for another time. <laughs> so I did a lot of lettering for that kind of stuff. And then I studied journalism in college. 
and oh. graphic design was my minor. And then afterward, I got kind of like a stopgap job at a local sign shop in the art department. Mm-hmm. And one of the th- main things I did was like I had people would bring in these old metal realtor signs and I'd have to identify the typeface on it so we could replace some old cracked vinyl lettering or something. And I got really good at identifying all the typefaces and then started like drawing my own typefaces and started like reading type forums and typographica and all that stuff. And then just (laughs) got obsessed from there. Yeah. I feel like starting to identify typefaces just by looking at them is like the gateway drug to becoming like a total (laughs) type nerd. Because you like start learning the anatomy and you're like, well, I know that the Helvetica capital R has a little kick out on the leg and the aerial one has like no personality. So exactly. At least that's what it was like for me. So I I totally get it. Were you doing much type design before Type West or was Type West like your first introduction to type design education and stuff like that? Well, so that was... When I was doing that, that was like 2006, 2007. And then I bought a font lab license back at the time, just started kind of making really crappy fonts. And I just kept working at it for a long time, doing personal type stuff just for myself. Um, and I always wanted it to be a professional thing. But I'm a person who's like, I feel like I have to know everything I possibly can about something before I feel comfortable showing it to, well, not just not showing it to people necessarily, but doing something competently, you know? So I started looking into type schools or dreaming about type schools in the early 2010s. I just watch all the classes who are in type schools and the graduating work and all that stuff and always say, man, I wish I could do that. But, you know, in Oklahoma, it's pretty far from the coasts where those things are. It's very far from The Hague or (laughs) Reading or one of those places. So uh, there just weren't that many opportunities. And I have a lot of life here. I've got a wife and a daughter and... My whole family's here and has been for my whole life. So I just kind of wanted to stick around here. But then the one good thing to come from the pandemic was that Type West went online. And I found out like the week before that the submissions were due and like rushed and got a portfolio and a submission together and got in and was just thrilled about that. So, yeah. So anyway, long story short, I wasn't really doing professional type work. I, I have an Instagram where I post type stuff that I've been doing since like 2015 And that's just been my personal stuff until now. I mean, we've talked about how the remote learning has opened up the type design industry specifically more so than like I think other industries I know of because you're like a select five renowned schools that you can attend (laughs) for this very specialized thing that they're in cities that aren't cheap to live in, first of all, and they require you literally uprooting yourself for a period of time. And I think that's like also was kind of gatekeeping type design education for a long time is like, okay, so you had to relocate yourself. And we did an episode recently where it was like, okay, here are like the most popular type design programs. And Letter West is, I'm pretty sure the only one that's still continuing a fully remote program, which is pretty exciting. And we definitely want to talk to you about that because what was it like going through that program remotely? What were the challenges with learning type design remotely, and then what were the highlights as well? Gosh, I hope I don't ramble on too long about this. (laughs) Because like I said, this was like a dream of mine for 15 years when it finally happened. So just to get in was a highlight to begin with. But I feel like people have figured out remote learning by now. They had a really good system for it. There's like a, a dedicated Slack for it. The Zooms are really easy to learn in. The host can have a camera and show you what they're working on as you're 
learning and stuff like that. It felt really just like being in a classroom, just kind of sitting by yourself, looking at a computer, but <laughs> it still felt like a classroom. And it was really, a really, really incredible and honestly life-changing experience for me. And other highlights would be like just the community that came out of it. This was our first Type West's first international class because it was the first one that started online and continued for the entire course of it online. So we had people all over the world in all kinds of different time zones. But you're working really hard with these people for three 10-week terms, and you get to know them really well. And I love all the people in my class. They're all good friends and all amazing designers now. And that was a really cool thing, a really cool aspect of it. And then you just learn so much in such a short amount of time. I mean, it's a year-long program. It's not a short amount of time, but you get the basics from calligraphy, all kinds of different calligraphy practice. We had workshops with people doing, Jen Ramirez taught us flat brush calligraphy for Roman capitals. Cool. Oh my gosh, he's so talented. Yeah, that was amazing. And any kind of calligraphy you can imagine, you start with, and then you learn the programs, whether it's RoboFont or Glyphs, whichever one you prefer. Anything you could possibly need to learn about it that you learn really well because it's just such a rigorous program. The other highlight for me would just be the connections that you make when you're in there. Yeah. Our lead instructor was Graham Bradley, who's Rocks of Boxing Studios. This is his type foundry and like design practice. And he's someone I've been following for a long time. So it was really cool just to have him cool. as an instructor. And then the third term, James Edmondson was our co-instructor who I've been following since he came on the scene. And that was amazing. And Lynn Yoon was a co-instructor. She's amazing. I could go on and on. <laughs> it was just a crazy thing. It was like a year before that, I was just sitting around making stuff for my Instagram. And then like, here I am with all these people I've looked up to for so long. I'm just talking to them. And I'm, yeah. we're getting like positive. We're getting guest critiques from all these big names. Like I'm talking to Bias Freer Jones and Nina Stessinger and getting positive crits from them. And it's like, what's happening now? That was pretty crazy. <laughs> That's incredible. When we interview someone that I've been like following their work and I'm just like, oh my gosh, are we really talking right now? Is this happening? This is crazy. So I can only imagine if they're like critiquing your work too and telling you, you know, encouraging you and supporting you. I can only imagine. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a really wild thing that still feels like kind of surreal. That's amazing. And the challenging aspects of it are just that it's a really rigorous program. If you're going to get into it, you need to realize that you're going to devote a lot of time to it. They try to structure it for working people. But you're going to spend a lot of your non-work hours working on a, on the class. There's two nights a week where you're in class and then you've got homework assignments throughout the week and you've got workshops a couple times per term that are pretty in-depth. And if you have a kid like me, that makes it a little bit more challenging, but it was all fun. Have you taught your kid any type design yet? <laughs> <laughs> My daughter, Mary, is an incredible artist in her own right. She's seven and she spends all of her time making books. Oh my god! Not all of her time, but like that's her favorite activity. She illustrates and writes all these books and she does some pretty cool lettering in them sometimes too. So I'm proud of that. That's awesome. And she knows what type design is because of me. So <laughs> that's better than most adults, honestly. 
<laughs> I'll still talk to people that are like, people are still making fonts? There's not enough fonts? <laughs> yeah, totally. That's incredible. Do you think the program itself, was it similar to what you were expecting out of like a type education program? I'm so excited we're having you here talk about this because I feel like for so many years, there wasn't much media around here's what my experience was like in a type design program because any people even knew that there was type design programs to go to. So what would you say was the expectation going in and then what you got out of it as well? That's a good question. I don't think I really knew what to expect going in because, well, I'd seen a lot of people share things like that they were working on, like type media students and people like that. But I think it really had matched what I would expect from a program like that really well because it starts with like I was saying, you get all the foundations. It definitely surpassed my expectations for what it could have been, especially the online version. Because you think about going to one of these programs and you think about like what Type West would be like in person because it's in, it's in the Letterform Archive in San Francisco where you have just this tremendous library of physical type specimens and type objects of all different kinds that you can be around all the time. You can be with people doing hands-on workshops and stuff like that. and I guess that's probably what I expected it to be like. And it really was what it was like online too, because you get the same kind of experience. You get to watch people do what they're teaching. You can still see it just as well as you could in person online. Maybe not in quite as much detail, but, and then uh, the Letterform Archive has a really robust online archive too. So I didn't really feel like we were missing much just having it online. That's good to know. And again, I haven't really talked to anyone about the full experience. I haven't talked to any graduates like uh, at length from the remote program, but that's excellent to hear. I think Juan Villanueva is in charge of the upcoming program. So I've heard a little bit about him planning for that. So I feel like this will be music to his ears. (laughs) Yeah. No, Juan was one of our, our workshop instructors too. And that was amazing. He did an experimental type workshop with us, which was really, really cool. He's so talented. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. We're still going to be talking about your education experience, but we were so excited to have you on because of the work you've done with the Cherokee syllabary. And before we get into that, I was wondering if you could, in your own words, describe what the Cherokee syllabary is, because I'm sure there are people that have never heard about it before. Sure. Yeah. So the Cherokee syllabary, the syllabary is our writing system for our language. Uh, It was invented by Sequoia in, he started working on it in 1809 and introduced it in 1821. So last year was the the bicentennial of the introduction of the syllabary, and it was officially adopted as the writing system in 1825. But just like basics, it's a, for people who don't know what a syllabary is, it's not like an alphabet where it's based on phonemes. Each symbol represents a syllable. So for the Cherokee syllabary, Sequoia identified 86, well, it's 85 now. There's originally 86 syllables in the Cherokee language and made a symbol for each one. And originally they were really intricate, calligraphic, flourishy kind of things that were handwritten that he wrote. That's how he invented it. And over time it had to be adapted for like the printing press. So that's why the version of the Cherokee syllabary you see today doesn't look all flourishy and calligraphic and stuff. It's really simplified and several of the characters are repurposed Latin characters that have no relationship to their sounds and, and, you know, English or anything like that. But it's just that there are a couple of different stories. One is that Sequoia saw when he was trying to adapt it for the printing press, and he was having help from 
missionaries and other people who had printing experience. But there's one story that he saw in his, I think his brother's or brother-in-law's Bible, some Latin characters, and decided that some of them looked close enough to the symbols that he had already drawn that they could be used. So some of them are simplified versions of his original symbols, and some of them are repurposed Latin characters. I didn't realize some of them were repurposed, too. I feel like I've seen pictures of the syllabary, but I didn't realize that they're repurposed, but as a symbol, they're used as a syllable. Right. Correct. Yeah. For instance, there's one that just looks like a Latin V, but it's Mm -hmm. uh, in Cherokee, it's Do. Whoa. Interesting. Yeah. Just one example. There's several of those. (laughs) I feel like this is like my ignorance. The way we describe letter, the forms of the letters of our Latin alphabet, it's letter forms. How would you describe the look of, is it a symbol? Like you call it like the symbol form or how would you describe that you think? That's a good question. I usually just call them characters. Characters. <laughs> good to know because I'm always like, oh, I, I'm working really hard over the past year or so to kind of understand the difference between like alphabetic like writing systems and syllabic writing systems and understanding they are just different beasts, but I'm sure use similar modes of system making and stuff like that. I mean, as far as doing research, so in your Type West program, you made this multi-script typeface that, you know, had the Cherokee syllabary in it. I can imagine it was very difficult to find resources on the typographic history and it's probably like few and far between. So, or far and few between, how do you say that? Yeah, one of those. Um, (laughs) And to find like material where you could understand how to construct these characters from like the literal form of them um, has got to be really challenging. So where did you start to find something, to find resources on an underrepresented script and what paths did you go down to kind of help you on that journey? So it's not quite as difficult as you might think. And that might have something to do with being in northeastern Oklahoma. I'm in Tulsa, which at least part of Tulsa is on the Cherokee Nation Reservation. And Tahlequah, the uh, Cherokee capital, is just about an hour from here. So I grew up seeing syllabary in different places. I didn't grow up with the language, but I would see it around different places. So I was familiar with the forms, at least before I started getting into drawing them. And then in the last 10 years or so, I've really immersed myself in it a lot because like around like 2010, I think I first got interested in trying to make some syllabary fonts. So I started just drawing the characters in different ways and trying to get used to them and what they look like. So I started practicing the forms and really wanted to learn my language because no one in my family is fluent anymore. And so I started taking language classes through the Cherokee Nation and there was a lot of syllabary involved with that too. So I learned some of the forms there. But then also anything you need to find is on the internet pretty much. So there's lots of stuff that you can just Google and find from Sequoia's original drawings of the syllabary to, you know, like pages from the Cherokee Phoenix or the Cherokee Advocate, which were Cherokee newspapers that ran for a long time that were printed in syllabary. And those are helpful to look at. Oh, the other thing I did is I went to Tahlequah because last year was the bicentennial and they had exhibits in all kinds of different museums there for the syllabary's bicentennial. So one really, really amazing thing I got to actually was the Cherokee uh, Supreme Court Museum, which at one time acted as the press for the Cherokee Advocate, had on display an actual original set of Cherokee metal type from that was wow. that they used to print the Advocate. So I went there and I got to look at these tiny little, you know, tiny little Cherokee type things with a little micro or little magnifying glass thing. Yeah. And 
the person was probably confused about why I was staying in there for so long, but that was really helpful. Another cool thing during Type West that I got to do is I got some help from Mark Jamra from Jamra Patel, who made Forius Cherokee, which is one of the, I would say, the most extensive Cherokee typefaces. There aren't very many to begin with. He made this back in, I think, like 2014, 2015, sometime around then. So I got some direct feedback and advice from him, which was really helpful. And then also, there are people working for the Cherokee Nation for the language department. It was like Roy Boney and Jeff Edwards, who have done a lot of this work already. So, you know, I can kind of look at their research or look at the talks they've given or look at the materials they've put out there. And that helps me understand it a little better and know the forms really uh, better. Yeah. That's informative for people that like want to kind of dive into a script that isn't, you know, in our mainstream typographic libraries. I think looking at source material, that's definitely super helpful to hear. I'm actually curious when a lot of people research scripts that that's not their like fluent typographic script that they're familiar with. They research how it was written to begin with, like when we're learning calligraphy for Latin alphabets, we understand like translation and expansion with calligraphic methods. Was yeah. there a specific writing tool that was used for the syllabary or did it follow just really similar logic to typographic Latin kind of constructed letter forms as far as how to create where the contrast and stress joints and anatomy of all that? That's something I'm still kind of studying myself. Because all the all the historical examples I've seen are more monolinear, at least in the handwritten version. And this is a unique thing with Cherokee is because in its current form, the characters are based on metal type. So originally when it was handwritten, the forms looked completely different. But now the look of the syllabary itself is based on when it was adapted to metal type. So that's how people write it now, too. They write, like I was saying, like the repurposed Latin characters, that's how people write those symbols now. It's not still written the way it was when Sequoia first designed it. Interesting. So there's not necessarily like a translation expansion sort of relationship there. And when I talked to Roy Boney recently and Jeff Edwards, they were saying, it, you know, it just depends on what you write it with. You can add whatever kind of contrast you want to it, as long as the skeleton is there. But I need to dig a little bit more into that because everything I've seen is kind of monolinear from old handwriting samples. Interesting. Okay. I was like, am I stupid? Am I not seeing something? So I was watching your talk being like, here's all these examples. And like, some of them look like they adapted Bodoni and some of them look like very monolinear. And I was like, some of them look really contemporary. So that's actually really fascinating that that is still kind of up in the air. I love that. This is a question from Steph, our lovely contributor at the league. She was asking, how did your teachers at Type West that weren't familiar with the Cherokee syllabary give you feedback on your typeface? I spent most of my time in class hours working on the Latin alphabet and the uh, Cherokee compliment was something I just kind of wanted in there for my own purposes. Like I wanted it just because I wanted to have the syllabary in there. It was important to me. So my feedback for that part came from Mark Jamra, who was kind of my mentor connection for that part. I did get a little bit of feedback about how it, matched the rest of the characters and everything but in general they like graham and james and people like that (laughs) didn't want to touch it because they didn't want to give me advice on something they didn't know about which is cool you know so yeah i got feedback from mark jamra about that and that was helpful yeah was that something that you sought out when you were in the program or is that something that was already in the program you were expecting to receive that feedback 
From Mark? Yeah, from Mark. No, that was a surprise that Grendel, the, the education director there, hooked me up wow. with that connection, which was really cool. That's very cool. Because I had wanted to reach out to him before, but, you know, not confident enough to, like, reach out. But it was, that was amazing. It was really cool of her to do that. Yeah, that's incredible. Because I can imagine with Type West being remote, it draws an international community. And with that, I'm sure people are wanting to do multi-script families. It's becoming more and more of a thing. So I'm always so curious, yeah. like, how do you give feedback on forms and spacing that maybe you're not familiar with? But that's great. You got like a a guest feedbacker in there telling you yeah. some really good stuff. That's incredible. I think our class was the first one that tried to do like multi-script families. As far as I know, there were two other people who worked on different scripts too. And uh, to Graham's credit, he was totally on board with that. You know, we asked early on if that's something we could do. And he was like, yeah, totally go for it. I just, I won't be able to give you feedback on it, but (laughs) they were super encouraging. Yeah. Even that support's important. Yeah. Cool. All right. Pivoting to some bigger picture questions. What is the most important advice on creativity that you have either gotten or would like to give? Oh, man. I don't feel like I'm someone who like internalizes quotes super well. (laughs) You know, you hear people say, oh, my teacher used to always tell me this specific thing or something like that. But I don't think I do that very well. I guess I would say, first of all, consume a lot of materials, just always consume stuff (laughs) that is in your chosen craft and not just current stuff, but historical stuff too. You just need to know the foundations and it's helpful to know where the styles that you're seeing now came from and how they evolved over time. And then just make creativity a practice. I would say make it a habit, just make stuff all the time and you'll get better at it over time. Every creative practice is imitation at first. You can't really avoid that. Over time, if you just keep making stuff, your influences melt together and it kind of becomes your own thing. You almost can't help but develop your own style. Yeah. You know, everyone's hand works a little differently. Everyone's going to play guitar a little different. Everyone's going to draw a little bit differently. And over time, you notice those idiosyncrasies and you just lean into them and that becomes your style. So yeah, I guess that's my main advice. Just keep at it and eventually it's going to work itself out. (laughs) Yeah. In my own creative practice, I've tried to feel like sometimes perfectionism is not it. Sometimes it's just putting in the work and keep on going and pushing through. And that's actually where you get your more creative breakthroughs is just allowing yourself space. If one path isn't working, just pivot, move on and like try out different stuff and feel like very aligned with you on that. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) I think think that's good for people to hear too about your own idiosyncrasies. The weird things that you do, nobody else does. And maybe when I was first starting out, I was trying to get somewhere that I idolized. And so I was like aiming for a particular thing and trying to do things a certain way. And uh, at a certain point I started to be like, well, I always do this because I always like it. And then I like throw it away because that's what I always do. And at a certain point you start realizing like, oh, maybe what I always do is the cool, unique thing that I always do. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I think it took me a long time to, to realize that too. I always relate everything back to music because that was such a, is such a big part of my life, but was for like 20 years. But I look back at like when we started our band and what it sounded like then, we just sounded like our influences. And then over time, you kind of learn your own unique playing style and you just lean into that and then it becomes your own thing. And I think that's true for any creative practice. Yeah. 
And the more time you spend seeing what you like and figuring out what you like too, you realize, oh, I don't have to mimic this. I can bring in aspects that I like into what I do really well. And that's a powerful thing. It's a powerful thing in type design when sometimes people just want to follow the trends and they're like, oh, I'm seeing this one type design pop off. Maybe I got to go into the ink trap uh, business here <laughs> and see what that's like. But I feel yeah. like at the end of the day, the graphic designers who are using the type can see who's really doing stuff that feels true to the designer themselves or who's trying to hop on board with something else. So I think that yeah. can definitely apply well to young emerging designers. Okay. Another hot question. Who's a person working right now in the letter form world that you admire? <laughs> this is like asking me what my favorite band is because <laughs> I can't narrow it down. So I'm going to give like a cop-out answer, I guess. I can shout out every one of my classmates. They're all doing awesome work. I've looked up to Graham and James for a long time. Really respected, admire their work and everything that they do. Oh, someone you all shouted out last week, Libby Bischoff, Type D Nord. Cool work. She was our TA and she was amazing. And Oh, wow. She started her whole project when we were in our class. So we got to kind of see the inception of that and see her works in progress every week and stuff. And oh, my God. That's awesome. I'm blown away that she's been able to keep up that project this long. Yeah. Talk about consistent work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's all so good, too. She's putting out such great stuff. But that's a little bit of a cop-out answer. There's so many people I look up to, and <laughs> I look at so much type design and respect so many people, it's hard to say. Absolutely. That's fair. I'll accept the answer. Before we started recording, you said that you've been working on a lot of type design as of late. Can you talk about what you're working on now? It's okay if you can't, but I'm going to see if I can get it out of you. <laughs> Broadly, I can talk about it. Okay. So I, I've post-Type West. I got really, I've been really lucky to actually do a little bit of work with Graham Bradley and Rox Boxen, who is our lead instructor. And that's been amazing, uh, doing some type-based work with him. And I'm working on uh, lettering for a logo for this thing I can't talk about yet either all for the, that the Type Directors Club is doing coming up in November. That means it's important. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be really cool. It has to do with North American and Indigenous type. So wow. that's going to be a really, really cool thing. That's awesome. And also I'm working on two to three different fonts for myself. I'm hoping to finally launch my foundry. I'm shooting for August at this point, which is just nice. kind of a, a random date because James Edmondson told me to choose a date and stick to it. So yep, that sounds <laughs> like a James advice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. And he's been giving me some, some pointers on that stuff too. So and a couple of other small things here and there. But yeah, it's been amazing to actually like start doing type work for real. I just hope you're just beaming with pride. I mean, that's really incredible to continue the education because some people go through the type design education programs and they want to sharpen their type design skills, but some are just not interested in type design. And I know it's a small industry, so it's the work is not, I mean, the work's there, but I wouldn't say it's abundant. So it's pretty incredible when you get to help and contribute to the industry. Yeah, definitely. Jobs don't come along that often in the type industry, especially now. Most foundries are smaller, mostly one person, sometimes a couple of people. But yeah, it's I'm just pinching myself every day that I get to actually do this. That's really cool. Oh my gosh. Well, I love that. 
Final question. What future trajectory do you hope to see for the type industry as a whole? I feel like you really have your hand on the pulse. You just graduated from Type West recently. You know some of the educators. You know what people, your classmates were thinking about. I think you're probably feeling very energized about that. Where do you hope to see things going in the future? I think there's a lot of really cool things happening in the type world. There's just a lot of cool experimentation going on with type formats like variable fonts and things like that, which I know people talk about all the time, but there's so many cool things you can do with variable fonts. And I think they're really useful and practical for a lot of different things. And then there are platforms like future fonts and things like that that allow you to designers to get their work out there in a premature sort of stage before it's really finished, which is a new and cool thing to do too. Really the way I feel like it's moving with kind of the explosion and options for education is I just see a lot of people, a lot more people getting into it and a lot more cool and experimental and innovative kind of work coming out of that. I think it's a really exciting time. I know there are people who've been doing it for a long time who, who kind of lament the fact that there are so many new designers coming in and like, it's going to make, make things harder for, (laughs) for everybody. But I kind of feel like it's the opposite. The type world to me feels very much, not to go back to music again, but it feels very much like the punk rock scene that I grew up in. Everyone's very connected. Everyone's really supportive of each other. Everyone hypes each other up and uh, wants everyone else to succeed, collaborates on things. I don't know. I think more passionate people getting into it is good for the industry as a whole. I totally agree. As graphic designers who are kind of shaping, you know, our visual landscape, there's more need for a larger variety of typefaces and they don't all necessarily have to be the huge type families that can be used for small size text that requires years of belaboring over, you know, small scale text that are known as the projects that take years. Sometimes you need a great display font that says a new story that hasn't been told before. And it's okay if you can't use it at 12 point size. It's not what it's for. I think that that's the argument. A lot of these more seasoned type designers are like, you know, it takes a really long time to like understand and perfect the craft, which I'm not going to argue against. Like, I think we need people that take that time. But at the same time, if you cut off early designers in the type design world, then what are you doing? You know, I think the more voices we have in the industry, like you said, the more experimentation makes I think everyone a little bit more excited. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. Love that you went there. All right. As we wrap it up, Chris, you've been incredible. I love hearing about the process of creating your font with the Cherokee syllabary, as well as the Type West design education program, and just like some really nice, profound gems on creativity (laughs) and keeping it going and really getting a supportive community. I love to hear that you've just like had such a positive experience. Where can people find you on the internet if they want to follow your work and uh, the new releases that Tulsi Type is happening, is having in August? (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully. I got to stick to that date. (laughs) The best place to find me is on Instagram. That's where I post most of my stuff. My website is kind of perpetually under development. And hopefully that will be, I'll have to finish that up before I release stuff. But Isn't everyone's though? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I feel like it. Uh, I'm at Tulsi type on Instagram, T-U-L-S-E-Y type. And yeah, that's about it. I'm on Twitter and I I post kind of infrequently, but yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> Amazing. Well, this has been an incredible conversation. I think you're going to open up so many eyes and I'm so excited for people to hear it. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Good to talk to you all. Do, 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 do. Do, 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 do. Do, 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 do. I always have to end that way. I'm like, I'm all just doing